Hello and welcome back to another episode of Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may recognize my face or my voice as the host of our other podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest now weekly leadership podcast in its fifth year, where each week we're privileged to host and interview people from a broad spectrum of, uh, of careers, best-selling authors, business titans, CEOs, influential thought leaders, researchers, and even people that have perhaps survived some tragedy and have lived to teach us some great leadership lessons about that. As you may know from watching previous episodes of this podcast, it wasn't always the biggest Hollywood celebrity or the iconic thought leader that got the most interview downloads or likes or reviews. It was oftentimes the people that had remarkable careers, like you and me, but had great, relatable insights to share what they did well or they did poorly and how we could replicate those in our lives, which is why today we have Sally Krawcheck. She is the co-founder and CEO of Elevest. More on Elevest in a few moments. Joining us from her home office in New York City, Sally, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for the time today, Sally, and thank you for investing in our listeners and our viewers. Today, we're going to talk a lot about personal finance and wealth management and the, the often neglected um, knowledge around the value of compounding. You have a passion around uh, uh, pre- people's taking control of their personal finances and the role that organizations have in that. We'll talk more about that in a few moments, but you have a very storied career on Wall Street. You're known as you know, in many cases, kind of the moral conscience of Wall Street. It's a strong moniker to put on you. You're often referred to as the last honest analyst on Wall Street. I don't know that you call yourself that, but in many ways, you've been a governing influence on the ethics of many of the companies that you've worked in and with and for and led. Will you take a few minutes and walk us through your professional journey and talk about how you've now come to be the co-founder and CEO of Elevest? Um, It is not a journey that I ever could have imagined. Um, I grew up in the town of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, When I went to North Carolina for college, I thought I was going north and um, ended up on Wall Street, not because I had a lifelong dream to be on Wall Street, but because I wanted to be a journalist. And I figured I didn't really know about anything, so I might as well go to Wall Street, learn about money, learn about business, and then be able to write about it. Um, but that never happened. I I never went back, but I found a real passion, um, uh, you know, on, as you mentioned, wealth management, personal finance, helping people. So it started as a research analyst at Sanford Bernstein, um, where I had my first big contrarian moment, uh, when all of the research analysts in the mid and late nineties on wall street were bullish. It was just the rule of the road. It's what you did. You didn't step out of line. Um, And I was bearish and um, really stepped out of line and was right, then became director of research and ran the business. And all the Wall Street businesses were in the business of, you know, the same individuals, research analysts and investment bankers. I won't go through the details, but there is an inherent conflict there when you have two sets of clients um, in one person, not just one division, but one person who have interests that conflict with each other that are directly opposed. And you ask an individual to go and manage that conflict themselves. Well, and particularly when there's money involved, um, as you might imagine, it did not end well for the individual investor or for the analyst. And when I was director of research, 
I noted this and got us out of the conflicted investment banking business, giving up millions and millions of dollars of revenue at the time. Um, the company, the division almost just tanked. Um, we just weren't able to um, really keep up with the big guys. But when it became clear that these conflicts were truly hurting the small guys, um, that's when our business went vertical. Um, when I was on the cover of Fortune magazine as the last honest analyst, and when I had really my first big moment on Wall Street. Um, I then went on to run Smith Barney, the dearly departed Smith Barney, um, you know, and the research department at City when they were struggling uh, because of the research scandal. I became chief financial officer of City. And my second big contrarian moment was during the subprime crisis of 0708. Uh, we had some investments that we, the group, the team thought were low risk, the markets would go bad and they would go down a little bit. They really had just made mistakes and they uh, went down a lot, went down everything. And um, I made the case to my new CEO at Citigroup that we were at fault, we should partially reimburse clients for it. Um, he did not see it that way. It went to our board, uh, the board of directors saw it my way, uh, but when you take on the CEO at the uh, board level, you uh, whether you win or lose, you you lose your job. And so was that on my tail, um, eventually went to Bank of America where I was charged with turning Merrill Lynch around, um, which after a couple years of, of doing that um, brought me to sort of a recognition um, that the industry was wasn't serving women particularly well, and it was costing women um, literal fortunes over the course of their lives, and more importantly, um, lots of flexibility in their lives, lots of ability to do different things. So I think the only banker of my generation to go from the C-suite of the big, uh, big, big complex banks to starting a business from literal dirt, uh, well, maybe figurative dirt, and raising venture capital money in order to do it. So I got that, I squished that in as much as I could, but there's there's a lot there. And, and I know there's more too, we'll explore that. Thank you for that uh, great overview. Uh, Sally, it's probably fair to say you're a bit of an iconoclast. You can play the role of a contrarian. I don't think you're always a contrarian, but as you began to establish yourself as not the moral authority of Wall Street, but very clear to you, what, as you saw, what is right and what is wrong, did you find that that was like an all-in moment for you? Was it like a moment of truth where you knew what the consequences might be, but it was worth it for you? Was there a particular moment of truth on that journey for you? Yeah, I know I'm supposed to say yes, uh, but before I get to yes, um, it actually was part of my means to being successful. So at the age of 26, um, in the investment banking division at Solomon Brothers in London, I looked up and realized I was the senior woman in the division, um, the senior woman. And so there was an implicit recognition that if I was going to do what everyone else did, stay in the pack, you know, be part of the herd, I wasn't going to make it to 28 or 29 or certainly my 50s and certainly to the C-suite. Um, that there was plenty of evidence of that. But that if I managed to, you know, study situations pretty carefully, um, take in information that everyone else had, but come out to different conclusions, that there was the potential that I could be so value add that they couldn't ignore me. 
This was very much the case when I became a research analyst. And we now all know the sell side research analyst. If you know, you're senior in companies, you see the reports that come across your desk and it's this company reported earnings and it was two cents ahead about what we expected. And it was a little bit stronger in this and the costs were a little bit. I'm like, that's who's got time for that? I refuse to do that. I need to stand out. And that means taking all the information the other analysts have and saying, you, you have all this and you see a tree. Um, I have all this information. I'm doing deep analysis and I'm putting together in a different way. And I see a frog. And, you know, my value add is that I'm going out to portfolio managers and we're talking about the frog. Um, so it, it didn't tend to be like this moment of I am right and everybody else is wrong. It was more a series of moments of here is something that I see well different from everybody else and I am delivering value that others aren't. And so did it later come down to when I was the night before the board meeting, when the CEO of Citigroup and I were gonna take each other on to determine whether to reimburse clients or not. You know, did I have a moment of, ah, maybe I'll just go with the flow because I don't want to lose my job? Sure. Did I then have a moment of saying, you know what? I got to look my kids in the face, um, in the eyes when I come home at the end of tomorrow and I am not going to go with the flow. I'm going to do what I think is right. That happened too. But it wasn't an all or nothing. It was a continuum. Sally, did you find that you became a little bit nuclear? Meaning were you like... Uh boards of directors' worst nightmare or were companies bringing you in because they liked what you represented and the wisdom and, and, and the reason and <laughs> ration with which you thought? What, what happened after that to your brand? Oh, I, I wish. Um, you know, after I got, after the incident at Citigroup, um, you know, I remember reading in the press, you know, this is the subprime crisis and, and in the press, this woman is going to get a zillion job offers because this um, standing up for clients is exactly what the industry needed. And, I, and frankly, I would at the time get on a plane and go on a trip and I'd have somebody stop me and say, oh my gosh, are you the gal from Smith Barney? You partially reimburse, you know, you reimburse me. I've never seen the light, you're the only one. Uh. And it was great, but there were no job offers coming. Um, and in fact, I've read research since then that says that when women take, when men take a moral stand against others in a business, People are like, eh. when women do it, it's like, you know, because you are so reinforcing that that outsider status. And, and I do recall a, a journalist, um, you know, with all that noise telling me, no, no one's, you can't come back from this. You just can't. Um, as a woman to have made that noise, to stood up for that, you're not coming back, to which, of course, you're right, the hell, the hell I'm not coming back. Watch me. Um, and sometimes it means you have to work to be successful in a different way, no longer part of the, the herd, but how can you build and do something that's demonstrably different? Indeed, you did come back. Let's talk about Elevest. This is a, a passion project of yours that is a massive business with well over a billion dollars under um, investment and uh, in management. Talk about Elevest and specifically talk about maybe the mission and also the financial uh, indicator measurement tool you have with Elevest as well. Um, so the mission of Elevest is to get more money in the hands of women. Um, and we, you know, we love to say to Elevest, we don't have anything bad that happens when women have more money. Indeed, today, you know, we talk about the gender pay gap, the 80 cents to a white man's dollar that women earn 
There's actually a gender wealth gap, which is much more important. It's how much she has. And that's 30 cents, 32 cents to a white man's dollar. And for women of color, for black women, it's a penny. It's a penny. And going backwards before the pandemic, as a result of this, money is women's number one source of stress. Um, and as a result of this, she lives a smaller life. Think about all the women you know who are stuck in bad marriages that they can't leave because the divorce will cost them too much or you know, can't start the business they want to or stuck in the job that they hate. The, the cost is high, but the cost is high for us, say, society, too, uh, because, you know, think of all the jobs that aren't created from the businesses that women didn't start. Think about, you know, all the, um, you know, the ch childhood enrichment from moms not having the money in order to, to pay for that. So we all lose when women don't have the wealth that men have. Um, and as I step back and, and realize this, as I was thinking about what's my next step, and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, they're actually it's not that hard because there have only been two reliable ways, historically reliable ways to build wealth in this country. And both of them tap into the power of compounding, which you mentioned before. One is to buy a home. Right. And we all know our grandparents they bought the home and now it's worth whatever. But it takes a down payment. So it takes money and it takes leverage. It takes a mortgage or there's investing. Um, and investing doesn't take any big upfront payment, not a liquid, don't have to take on debt. Uh, but the power of compounding is such that if you begin to do it even with small dollars, you earn returns on the returns and returns on the returns and so on. And even though we were sitting here today like, oh, the stock market, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, for sure. But since the 1920s, it's, it's gone up at a rate of close to 10% a year annually, even with the ups and downs. And when you step back, you say, well, the issue here, a issue here, not the issue, but a issue here is women simply haven't invested as much as men have. Women have left more of their money in cash, um, left the majority of, you know, 70 something cents in cash, where for men, they've invested the majority of theirs. OK, my old industry has a explanation for this, and the explanation is women are risk averse. They're not as good at math. They need more financial education. All of it is it's her fault. At Elevest, we were the first ones who, rather than trying to market at her, said, we're going to serve her. We're going to build a product around her. And we're going to make the simplifying assumption um, that it's not these things that are her fault, because indeed the research you know, shows she's not risk averse, more risk averse than men. She's not, she didn't need more financial education. What we believe the issue is, is in an industry where 99, 98, 99% of investment dollars are managed at companies owned by men and 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men and 90 plus percent of traders are men and 86% of financial advisors are men. And I, we love men and they've built a business for themselves. And so you don't have to even look any further than the crypto craze of last year, you know, which is sort of this fueled, you know, sort of trading frenzy, which women are like, whoa, I'm out, to actually intuitively understand that this is an industry that wasn't built for women. And so we built the first company founded by, funded by, built by, built for investing in women. In fact, Sally, I think I read once where you had a lot of male financial counterparts that really advised you not to do this. It's never going to work. It's not going to happen. A lot of naysayers and your own uh, wealth under management began to compound. And then what something interesting happened along the way with those men when their daughters started to yeah. experience what? Finish that part of the story. Yeah. For sure. And, and it, by the way, the, my male friends who were very 
you know, really caring for me. Said, Sally, don't step out of the pack like this. Don't become the woman for women. You you can be there with like the the real people, not the junior varsity. Um, and, and I decided not to take that advice. And then the next thing they said is, well, we serve women too. And you're like, yeah, but you know, the numbers don't prove it out. So the, the naysayers, every step along the way, every step along the way, um, and my peers until, as you pointed out, their daughters graduated from college and went for the investment banking program at XYZ firm, um, or the, uh, you know, bank program over here. And when my peers my of men started to see their daughters, you know, like how hard it was. And, and gee, my, it seems to be so much easier for my son. Um, and gee, my, my son doesn't seem to be working as hard as she is. And he's getting more promotions and he, he got a bigger raise. And hold on a minute. This playing field is not level. And you're like, I like just the fact that there are very few women in senior position, like, and somehow it wasn't their wives, it wasn't their sisters, it wasn't their mom. It's when their daughters started hitting up against it, and then I get the, you know, this LMS is a really great idea, and can I give you my daughter's resume, and can I invest in the company? Sally, let's talk a bit about um, perhaps a controversial question. I'm going to ask it in a bit of an antagonistic way, and I'm interested to hear your opinion. Uh, We've heard a lot about the disproportionate impact that the pandemic has had on women's careers, right? As often the primary caretaker for their children, many women stepped out of the workforce for one, two, even three years, haven't gone back, and has in many cases set back women's advancement in the C-suite and on boards by you know, incalculable numbers of decades. What's not talked about is the, the, the lack of investing in 401k compounding that's happened also from those oh. females not having yeah. invested in their uh, investment vehicles yeah. during that time. That's not my question. Here's my question. To what extent is an employer and organization responsible for what seems like an increasing amount of every aspect of your employee's life, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your financial health? I don't care what your answer is. I just want to know from the C-suite and as a parent and as an investor and advisor, yeah. what do you think yeah. is the role companies have and kind of helping to co-manage their employees' full lives. It it is astonishing, isn't it? That you know, if you take a step back and you say, really, employers are responsible for healthcare. How, how did this happen, and, and why would that be, and and why should that be? Um, and responsible for helping their employees plan for and save for retirement. How 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 did that become? Um, the bottom line is it is what it is, and I'm not in any position to change it. What I am in a position to point out um, is that, you know, I think the lesson we learned from the pandemic is that the advancement that women had made um, was built on pretty unstable ground, and that Jessica Calarco, um, the sociologist, said, yeah, I think it was the end of 2020, and it just floored me. So what we learned is during the pandemic, other countries have social safety nets and the U.S. has women. Um, and it didn't take much for women to lose their jobs at disproportionate rates, lose advancement at disproportionate rate, and to your point, lose untold amounts of, of wealth and savings at disproportionate rates. The thing that I would urge the listeners here to think about is, is we every, everybody wants more 
more underrepresented individuals and more middle management and senior roles. Everybody does. I don't think there's anybody who's like, nope, not for us. We, we really want an undiver, really homogenous company. I think we as leaders all, all understand and get that. Um, but I would, again, be a little sparky and controversial myself to say that we have actually built companies um, that are centered on men and that are centered on men as they lived in the 70s, 80s, 60s, pick, pick the time period. And I'll give you an example, um, which is that if you speak to men about what their number one financial goal is, their number one financial goal is to prepare, be prepared for retirement. Yep, for a I mean, we can argue whether the government should do it, you know, to the full degree, but 401k, got it. For women, being prepared for retirement ranks number four of their financial goals. Number one is caring for their children. So they are much closer in, in terms of their financial aspirations. You know, that's not something companies really help them take care of. Other things, for example, you know, and companies are moving towards this, you know, for men, um, healthcare, something bad happens and then we take care of it. Women are much more on the wellness, help me not um, have healthcare issues. And, you know, we're beginning to move towards wellness benefits as opposed to sickness benefits. Uh, but things like um, paid safe leave um, for if you're a victim of domestic abuse or stalking, those things that can disproportionately affect women. Um, and so when you look through these things in the lens of, are we centered on men or are we centered on people more broadly? I think you begin to think about your benefits plans um, in a different way as you look for that to help attract and retain women and other underrepresented people. Sally, back to early in your career, what happens the morning you land on the cover of Fortune magazine? What, what, what does the next day and week look uh, like? I'll tell you exactly what it looked like. Um, I went home, I was on my way to visit my parents and I walked through the Charleston, South Carolina airport and the Fortune magazine was at the news kiosk. Um, and I went up to it and I put it to, I looked at, put it to my face. I couldn't believe how big it was. And I was like, this is, this is easily the most bizarre thing um, that's ever, ever going to happen to me. Um, but it was a recognition of my privilege um, and my building on that privilege in order to try to build businesses that were not just profit um, generating, but that were working to help American families uh, build their prosperity. Um, and you know, being grown, you know, growing up with parents who um, take you know care care of me, sent me to great schools, et cetera. Um, but building on that privilege to try to have a real positive impact. Your your passion, your obsession, your uh, uh, funneling your expertise is now focused on helping women specifically create wealth and to narrow the wealth gap between themselves and their male counter counterparts. Give us some practical advice. Speak maybe first to the women and then to men if there's any difference. What do you want the millions of women listeners and viewers today to take away from this conversation? They should stop and start doing what things and then what, if any, different yeah. advice would you give to men or perhaps even their male or female leaders about that? 
it's it's not that complicated. I'm not going to tell you, I want you to go out and open a brokerage account, and then I want you to read all these magazines, uh, you know, and read the paper every day about what sectors are hot and where the economy is going and what interest rates are. I mean, that's how we think about it, right? Um, the trick here is to take 15 minutes. It is, will be, I believe, the highest return 15 minutes of your whole life. Set up an account, I hope at an Alabest. Choose what your goals are, put in information around you. Uh, we, and there's others who do it of course as well, but we'll build a diversified investment portfolio for you. I want you to fund it with what you can and I want you to put in some amount out of every paycheck. I want you to set up the automatic deposits and then having chosen that goal, maybe it's build wealth, maybe it's retirement, maybe it's start a business, you let that money go to work for you. You do not freak out when the market is down by a lot. Um, you don't open your account and look at it all the time. You let the power of that recurring deposit, which means, you know, sometimes you'll be buying stocks high or bonds low and sometimes low or high, but it evens out over time and, and you don't have to make that decision about when to do it. The fewer decisions you can make, the better. And you let the power of the economy growing and therefore the stock market and the bond markets performing over time go to work for you and then they compound. And you know, the you put in a dollar and when you earn a dollar on that dollar, but then you're earning on the two dollars, then you're earning on the four dollars, then you're earning the eight dollars. So your money begins to make money on itself over time. Um, that's what I want you to do. I, it shouldn't cause many highs. It couldn't cause many lows. You want to check it once a year. You know, it's pretty straightforward. Um, I don't want you to fall into the money myths that have been told to us as women, that we aren't good enough, um, that we aren't smart enough, um, that we don't know enough of what we're doing, that it belongs to him. Um, I want you to take control over it. And it just sort of cracks me up because there's so much about career advancement and getting the raise and doing X, Y, Z at work. Those take a ton more than 15 minutes. Um, investing is something that only takes 15 minutes. If you're a gentleman, I would urge you to urge the women in your lives to do this. Certainly your daughters, get them started, you know, the minute they can. Um, you know, certainly those graduation presents and get them started and affirm them. Um, for your partner. Um, it's important if, if you love her to know that if she outsources the management of the money in the family to you, um, you she tends to live six to eight years longer than you do, sorry to tell you. 80% of women die single, 90% of women manage their money on their own at some point in their lives. And if you, as the man in the relationship are doing that, when that money comes back to her, she's unprepared. And in fact, when that money comes back to her, 74% of women have a negative surprise. And I don't think any of us want the loved ones in our lives, you know, if we pass away first or divorce first or leave first, for her to be left saying, where's the money? I thought there was more than this or I don't understand. So I think getting the family involved um, is important. And for women, it's to begin to Build your wealth. Sally, that was super valuable. Repeat the statistic about the 74% again. Kind of drive that home. Yeah. When she outsources money to the man in her life, and when it comes back to her, and this is what happens most often, 74% of women have a negative surprise. And I think every one of us listening um, has someone in their life who 
uh, he left her or he passed away on her. And she said, where's the money? And yeah. what do you mean this is what we've got? Right. And now I have to live on X when I thought I would have X plus plus. Sally, I want you to finish this conversation in the last three or four minutes we have. I want you to speak directly to Stephanie, my wife. At the risk of someone liking me or not liking me here, let me paint a picture of my family. I'm 54. My wife is 41. We have three young children, three boys that are 8, 10, and 11. Uh, I am the breadwinner for our family. My wife does not have an income or a career outside of being a full-time uh, parent to our children and, 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 and uh, manager of our home. My wife manages all of the finances in our family. I don't manage any of the money. I tend to take okay. on our investment responsibilities, but I'm a fairly traditional guy, and my father worked, my mother did it, and I always liked the idea of the balance of power, that I earned it, but my wife manages it, and she controls the money. It's a bit unconventional nowadays. Um, we have a 401k, and we have life insurance, we have investments, but we also have three young boys and you know, 25 years of working ahead of us because I started later in life. What advice would you give to Stephanie today who has as well college educated, very smart and very bright, but has you know, probably less uh, business acumen or financial acumen than perhaps working women her age would be. How would my wife engage with Ella Vest? Like, what should yeah. she do today? Should she take $100 and is she putting it into a mutual fund? Kind of walk Stephanie and yeah. the millions of Stephanies, whether they're men or women or working or not, what, what, is like, what does her afternoon look like when she watches this podcast? Speak directly to her. Well, um, so is Stephanie in charge of the investments? She's not. I tend mm -hmm. to be in charge of them, but she could be equally as in charge. And she has her finger on them. Concerningly, mm -hmm. she thinks they're underperforming and under um, investing. Well, I guess she, <laughs> well, Stephanie. <laughs> so look, I think these are, these are personal discussions and conversations. Um, you know, if you are a young, you know, Stephanie's younger sister, and you were just out of college. What I talked about before, which is take 15 minutes, come over to Alabast, answer some questions about your goals, put in information about you. Our invest, our algorithm um, will is the only one that takes into account that women live longer, earn less, take more career breaks, and die sooner. Harsh things, but really important things. And Alabast was the first, and, and I still believe only, investing algorithm that takes this into account. And so that's important for Stephanie's younger sister as she begins to invest and invest for retirement to have that algorithm working for her and recognizing that it means she may have to invest different amounts or invest differently. You know, as you move through your life, um, an LFS may provide you with a certified financial planner. Things get a little more complicated. I've got these three boys. You know, what? It ha we had a budget, but the budget doesn't work anymore. What about the will? Oh my gosh, my husband and I, we've got, or my partner and I, we're, we've got friction over money. What, what do we do about it? Well, then LFS can provide you with a financial coach or certified financial planner to help you with those more complex needs. But then this podcast, you've, you've hit, you've, you're doing well. Um, and you now need the services of a financial advisor, which LFS has. And at that stage, we begin to speak to people. Well, we, we speak to young people throughout, but we get, begin to really speak deeply to individuals about what are your values and what is important to you and begin to have conversations about 
well, I do want to invest for a competitive return, but I also want to invest for social impact, or I want to invest behind women. I'm interested in, in addition to my 60-40 investment portfolio, how can I invest in venture firms that invest in women or invest in workforce housing um, fixed up in a sustainable way or invest in, you know, averting climate change. And so we, you know, we move from, um, you know, let's take care of yourself first. Let's take care of that family. And then let's also see if we can take care of the broader world. And so investing for impact along the way, um, we're finding is important to the Stephanie's and the Stephanie's older sisters. So the engagement isn't one size fits all. Yeah, yeah. It's how do we help her from college to crypt, um, build her own wealth and have the impact that she wants to have. Sally, I asked the question actually less because of my wife and more because of the, the, the piercing accuracy of your statistic. My mother uh, is 82 and my father just passed six months ago. He was 84. I mean, check all the things you just said, right? My father was the breadwinner his whole life and my mother was not and managed the money. And there were some prizes, some surprises amongst my dad's passing, not all negative, but my mother now for the first time in her life, she's 82 years old. She's now probably has a decade or more ahead of her and she has all kinds of questions she's being asked and, and being overwhelmed with you know different things. And my father wasn't, um, wasn't transparent with everything, not in a sinister way, just in more of a probably controlling way, right, and such, not so atypical for their generation. But my mother's life is turning out exactly how you mentioned, as is my wife's aunt. Her long-term husband passed away recently, and they thought they had X, and they actually have, like, much less than X, like none. But, but Scott, this, this isn't just the generation ahead of us. This is the genera our generation and the generation behind us. There's research that shows. We, we all think, oh, well, those millennial gals and the Gen Z gals, they, they are managing their own money. Um, not in all cases. There, certainly there's some more movement too, but you're not seeing some massive shift. Um, one point I want to bring up, what I think drives this, obviously, is society. And I sort of hit on it before, the messages women get around money. You're risk averse. You're not as good at math. You need more financial education. Money is scarcity. The other side of it is just as important, with it, which is the messages men receive around money, which is you must be the breadwinner. You should be good at this. You need to go to cocktail parties and talk about the trades you did. You cannot be emotionally vulnerable about this. You know, being, you know, a strong man in our society means holding the reins of the money. And so for, for those 74% of when that money comes back to them and they're saying, oh my gosh, I thought we had more, on the other side is, is that man who's saying, I, I don't know how to tell her, right? Or I don't want to appear weak. And, and so it's not just good for women to take on the, you know, more of the responsibility for the money. It's good for everybody. It is good for everybody. Dubbed by Fortune Magazine as the last honest analyst, Sally Krachak, co-founder and CEO of Elevest. Uh, remind our listeners and viewers how they find Elevest. Yep, uh, pretty easy. We're at Elevest.com, um, and you can also find us in the, the App Store. E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T.com. Sally Krachak, thanks for pouring into our listeners today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.